0: Acts 20, beginning with verse 7, we look at uh, a kind of a picture of a New Testament worship service that took place in the city of Troas. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together, and there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, do not be troubled, for his life is is in him when he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten he talked with them a long while until daybreak and then left they took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted let's pray father in heaven we thank you for the privilege to gather here this morning Congregations probably worried now that I'm going to preach until midnight and then till sunrise the next morning. But Lord, you know I probably couldn't do it that long. But I pray as we open your word, Father, that you would give us understanding into your truth. Lord, thank you that your word is everlasting truth. For we pray in Jesus name. Amen. If you have visited several churches during the last few years, you know that a worship service can take many different forms. And if you've been in a lot of different churches and said, you know, this was, they're all different in, in some way. Uh, we call some of them traditional worship or contemporary worship or maybe a blended service. There are churches where there's loud music and churches where there's soft music and churches where there's no music. Churches where there's short sermons, churches where there's long sermons, and I've even been in a church where there was no sermon. Imagine that. I just don't understand that at all. And these differences aren't necessarily seen just from denomination to denomination. But even within certain groups or fellowships, you're going to find probably a great variety of types of worship. Even in our church body, AFLC, you can find very traditional, very contemporary, or maybe like ours, the right way. (laughs) A blended worship service, right? Where we have some of the old and some of the new, right? That's got to be the Bible way, right? The way we do it, huh? (laughs) Is there a right way to worship the Lord? Does the Bible give us any information as to how we ought to structure a worship service? What ought a New Testament service ought to look like? Well, in the verses we read from Acts chapter 20, we find here a description of a worship service, a gathering together of believers. It is not presented by Luke as a mandate that this is how we ought to worship because if it is, we're not doing it the Bible way then are we? My sermons are a lot shorter than Paul's were. And everyone said Amen, yeah, you couldn't even get it out, right? But there are several principles that we can take from this gathering as we think about what is a New Testament worship service? Let me suggest that there are four principles in this text. The first one is this. We meet together on the Lord's day. Look at verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered to break bread, Paul then preached this message to them. The first day of the week. What's the first day of the week? Today. Okay, this is the first day of of the week, it is not Saturday. It is not the Sabbath day like the Old Testament. So the question is, why do we worship on Sunday, when they worshipped in the Old Testament on the Sabbath day on on Saturday? Well, the primary reason why we worship on Sunday is because some very, what would we say, extremely significant events took place on Sunday, on the Lord's Day. What was the the obvious one? The resurrection, Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. Pentecost was also on the first day of the week. And as you examine then the New Testament, you find that the first day of the week came to be the time that the early church gathered together. First Corinthians chapter 16 verse 2 says, On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. So the early church established the practice of meeting on Sunday, the first day of the week. And if you notice the verse I just read, they took an offering. Just thought you might like to know that. Okay, we do have a reason for doing that. There's a biblical reason, and it's not just to pay the light bill. It's part of worship, isn't it? Part of giving to God or first fruits. I interned in a congregation in a different millennium back in the nineteen eighties where they took one offering a year. It was a farming community and it kinda made sense, you know, when you get the crop in and you get your money, they and they, they took in enough money on in that one offering To cover the whole year's budget. And I remember thinking first, isn't that neat? (laughs) But then as I studied scripture more, I thought, you know what? They're missing something in their worship service. Because there's to be that weekly offering, that weekly reminder that all that we have comes from God. And part of worship is giving in the offering. Do you look at it that way? I hope you do. It's not just to pay the, the bills, but it's part of worship. And they did that on the Lord's Day. Now, we aren't required to gather for worship on Sunday. There isn't a biblical command, thou shalt meet for worship service on Sunday, the first day of the week. In fact, the new covenant that we are a part of, we're given great freedom in terms of worship. Romans 14.5 says, One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike each person must be fully convinced in his own mind and that's why Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 verse 16 he says therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a sabbath day okay so so we don't have this binding You must meet on Sunday regulation like in the Old Testament with the Sabbath day. We have freedom. But we've chosen, as the New Testament church did, to gather on the first day of the week. Now, would it be wrong to meet on Saturday? No. But we meet on Sunday. And I think we have a good reason to do that. Lenski offers this uh, helpful comment. He says, Sunday as a day of rest and worship for Christians, is just about the opposite of the Jewish Sabbath. The Jewish Sabbath was wholly compulsory. Our gathering is voluntary. He says we keep Sunday because we want and need it for the public worship without which we cannot get along in our Christian life. Thus, without any legal constraint, whatever, in the most natural and voluntary manner, and in the sensible and wholesome exercise of our New Testament liberty, with the greatest unanimity since the earliest apostolic days, Sunday is our day of public worship. What does the Bible say about our gathering? Is it something that when you get up on Sunday morning, you ask the question to yourself, should I go to church today? How many of you did that this morning? Don't raise your hand. You might be embarrassed. It's not really a question, is it? You get up on Sunday and say, huh, I wonder if I should go to church today. What's the instruction given? Here's Hebrews 10. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near. So we meet on the Lord's Day. On Sunday. Someone has said, if absence makes the heart grow fonder, some people must really love the church. I'm preaching to people who don't need to hear this because you're here, right? But there's some, it's like, you know what? I'll come whenever, whatever. There needs to be that love to, to, to be here. Second thing we learn, we meet on the Lord's day, and we also meet with the Lord's people. The place where the church at Troas met was, was most likely in a house they met in homes during those days. And it was probably a fairly large house because verse 9 says they were meeting on the third floor. So that must have been a pretty good-sized house. And some wonder if it was the home of Carpus. Because in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, Paul tells Timothy to bring the cloak that I left in Troas... With Carpus. And it may be that that cloak that he left in Troas with Carpus took place in this gathering. I don't know if Paul got back to Troas, but he was certainly there that day, and maybe that's the day that he left his coat in church. Any of you ever done that? Yes, you have. Left your Bible in church? Any of you done that? Yes, you have. Do you write your name in your Bible? Not all of you. I don't know what that had to do with the text, but I just had to get it off my chest. Okay, Write your name in your Bible, all right? So we know whose it is. The gathering of people at this service obviously included the people of Troas. It was their congregation. But it also included some who were traveling with Paul. And some were Jews and some were Gentiles. Whoa, now that was unique, right? Verse 4. Here's some of those who were there. Paul was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, Gaius of Derby, and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. I don't know if I pronounced them right, but if you just say it with authority, then you're probably thinking, oh, that's how it's pronounced, right? That's how it's pronounced. So what do you have here? You have people at this service who are from various places, various backgrounds, having different gifts, different personalities, and yet they were all gathered together to worship the Lord. You know why? Because Jesus had united them together. Jesus had made them one. Some were Jew, some were Gentile, And yet together they were gathered to worship Jesus. Now, we're all different, aren't we, here this morning? We come from different backgrounds, grew up in different communities. We have different nationalities, people from the U.S. and Brazil. What is it that binds us together? It's Jesus, right? He unites us together. And that's what makes a, a Bible-believing congregation. Even though we are different in many ways, it is Jesus that unites us. We might irritate one another at times. Is that possible? Yes, it is. <laughs> but we still love each other. And it is wonderful to be able to gather together to worship. Do you look forward to Sunday? Do you look at your week and say, you know what? Only three more days until we can gather together to worship. I hope you do. I hope you look forward to these times when when we can meet together as brothers and sisters in Jesus. And worship our, our Savior. Last Sunday I wasn't here. Some of you don't even know that, do you? You probably weren't here either. But I miss being here. Because... We're we're, we're the body of Christ. We are grace-free Lutheran congregation. And we love each other. We want to be with each other, right? Right? Okay. Right, all of you? Okay, good. Let me make sure you're with me. Okay, so we meet on the Lord's Day. We meet with the Lord's people. And then the third thing we notice is we meet to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Notice verse 7, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. Now you might think that was a meal, and they certainly did have meals together. But this reference to breaking the bread, at least in the book of Acts, seems to be focusing on the Lord's Supper. As they would gather together to celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper, whatever term we might use. So let's ask the question, why why do we celebrate communion? Why do we gather together our practices once a month to celebrate the Lord's Supper? Well, Scripture gives us many reasons. One is to receive assurance that... Our sins are forgiven. Matthew 26, verse 28 says, Jesus said, For this is My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 24 and 25. We do this in remembrance of Jesus. His death and resurrection on our behalf. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26 Jesus says, for as often as you drink this and partake of the Lord's Supper, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. There's, a, there's a, a testimony aspect, a witnessing aspect, that we are proclaiming Jesus Christ's death as sufficient for our salvation. And that's why when you come to the Lord's table, it's for believers, right? For those who really know the Lord. First Corinthians eleven twenty-eight says, A man must examine himself and then partake of the Lord's Supper. So we have a periodic way of, of, of examining ourselves. Am I in a right relationship with Jesus? Am I in a right relationship with others in the body of Christ? We need that self-examination. And the Lord's Supper provides that time. And that's why it's important then that we are in a right relationship with the Lord and in a right relationship with one another. As we come to the Lord's table together, we don't want to come with with unforgiveness to the body. We have bitterness towards someone for to what they've said or done or haven't done. huh? Examining ourselves and then we come and we rejoice in God's gracious provision of His Son for our forgiveness and salvation. And we are refreshed and we are strengthened and we are reminded that the sacrifice of Jesus paid the price for all of our sins, right? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we may... Day, we meet with the Lord's people, we meet to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and then finally we meet to hear the Lord's Word. When that church met for worship, it's very clear that the primary focus of that gathering was the proclamation of the Word of God. And in this case, it was especially so because Paul was going to leave the next day. And so in order to take advantage of that opportunity that he had with this congregation, I would suggest to you that, that he preached a pretty long sermon, wouldn't you? <laughs> Verse 7 says, "...he began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight." Now, we don't know when he started, for sure, but he went until midnight... And then after a brief interruption to the service, while he raised Eutychus from the dead, who had fallen asleep during Paul's sermon, he continued to preach, we're told, a long while until daybreak. Now, if you think a 30-minute sermon is too long, you have no biblical foundation for such... A sinful attitude, (laughs) if I can put it nicely, okay? By the way, there is a lesson here, then, is there not, about the dangers of falling asleep during a sermon. It can be fatal. So, make sure you don't golf 27 holes the day before and come to church tired on Sunday morning, huh? Make sure you get a good night of sleep. How many of you got a good night of sleep last night? Okay. So, if you come to church on Sunday morning and you're tired because you haven't gotten enough rest, don't blame me, okay? We need to be rested. We need to come ready to hear the Word. Charles Spurgeon offered this warning. He said, remember, if we go to sleep during the sermon and die... There are no apostles to restore us. Okay, now Paul just raised Eutychus from the dead. If you die during the sermon, I'm not going to be able to raise you from the dead. Okay, I'm not an apostle. So stay awake. Now, some have wondered who is to blame here. Was it Paul? Because he had preached so long? Or was it Eutychus? Who sat on the windowsill. Okay. You fall asleep on the windowsill with the window open. What's going to happen? Well, we see what happens. So if we're going to say who is at fault here, you probably know what I would say. But if we believe that God is sovereign in the affairs of men, did he have a purpose in allowing this to happen? This young man falling out of the window and landing three floors down, probably right on the ground or cement or whatever it was. Did God want to show them that the word he had given through his chosen apostles is able to bring life even to those who are dead? And this may be why Paul raised Eutychus from the dead in a very similar way to what Elijah and Elisha did when they raised people from the dead. We have kind of a a weird description where Paul went down and fell upon him and embracing him. that's kind of what Elijah and Elisha did probably as a a miraculous way to say, you know what, here's a message you need to listen to. That miracle was authenticating that the message that Paul preached was from God. Now, we don't... You don't ask me to do a miracle, right? Do a miracle, Pastor, so I can believe that what you're saying is from God. How do you know? We've got His Word now, right? But what Paul did there authenticated the message that what He was proclaiming indeed had come from God. Can you imagine what happened in this community after this service? Can you imagine someone meeting someone on the street and saying, you will not believe what happened at church last night. There was a young guy that fell out the window and died. Oh, no. Well, that's only half the story. He was raised back to life can't you just hear the word traveling throughout troas what had happened in, in that congregation a miracle <laughs> yeah absolutely now think about it as wonderful as it is to read about a boy who was physically resurrected died and was brought back to life there is something that is more wonderful that happens in our churches today. You know what that is? That is when someone is raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. That's a greater miracle. And that happens when people are saved, when people come to Jesus. They are brought from death to life, right? From darkness to to light, and that is a miracle that takes place through the power of God's Word. <laughs> You've experienced that, many of you, haven't you? You've been brought to spiritual life. You were spiritually dead, and now you're spiritually alive, and that came about through the power of God's Word. Listen to what James 1.18 says, In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the Word of Truth. 1 Peter one twenty three For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but is imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. There is power in the Word of God. And that's why we believe that the preaching of God's Word needs to be central to a worship service. We aren't mandated, you know, how you order the service, you know, what kind of songs you sing and things like that, but we do have the pattern that the the, the central focus of a worship service needs to be the proclamation of God's Word. Our AFLC Declaration of Faith says the preaching of the Word of God must be the central part of the service. We dare not forget that. Ever. Ever. When our church started out in Canton, South Dakota, maybe 40 years ago, something like that, my dad went out there for meetings and he met an older, the way he talked, the, his, the brogue, well, must have been a Norwegian lady, because she came up after the service and she said, You know, Pastor, that since I've been coming to this church, oh, she says, the food. And she wasn't talking about, you know, biscuits and gravy. She was talking about the spiritual food. She said, it's so wonderful. She said, the church I used to go to, she said, I'd come there. And they'd have a beautiful table set. A plate and a fork and a spoon and a napkin and a glass. She said, but there was no spiritual food. There was nothing to eat. Then she said, since I've been coming here, she said, oh... The food, she said. I get a spiritual burp every Sunday, she said. <laughs> I thought, praise God for that. A spiritual burp. Taking in that life-giving, nourishing Word of God. That's why we come. We come to meet the Lord. We come to fellowship together. We want to hear from the Lord, right? we just saying, speak, O Lord. Speak, O Lord trust He speaks every week as we gather through His Word to encourage and nourish and strengthen and challenge us that we might serve Him with all our hearts. Let's pray. Thank You, Lord, for Your Word today. Thank You for the privilege of worship. Thank You, O God, that we have here a a body of believers. Uh, We love each other. We might irritate each other at times, but we still love each other. And I pray, Lord, that you would increase that love for you and love for your word and love for one another. And then love for those who, who don't know you, who don't know what worship really is. So, Father, do your work in our midst this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.